Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading together about David's life from the books of First and Second Samuel. Last week, we read the story of David being made king of the tribe of Judah, and this morning, we're going to read the story of David becoming king over the whole nation. So I'm going to read from Second uh, Samuel 5 for us. I'll read verses 1 through 12. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as we always do, that you would uh, meet us in this word, in this uh, story that we have read and heard together, that you'd meet us um, from whatever places we have come to you and are in this place this morning. Those of us who are ready to hear from you, who feel near to you, those of us who feel uh, far away from you, either because we have been running or you have been quiet. Meet those of us who aren't sure even where we are um, in faith and whether we want to hear from you or not. Father, we ask uh, that you would meet us, that you would show us the grace of Jesus, and that you would change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. I was, uh, I was at my parents' house uh, for a few days the week before last, and when I came back, uh, I came back with this really big, really heavy box that had um, From Aaron's Closet written on it. Um, <clears throat> this was a box full of stuff from my childhood closet. This was stuff that they had packed up and uh, moved uh, with them from their house in Baltimore. It was a box full of things that I hadn't seen uh, since I was 18 years old. 
so I brought it back and I let it sit for a few days unopened uh, because I knew that when I did look at that stuff, it was going to uh, put me in some kind of way. Uh, and I did feel several feelings when I eventually looked at it. I mean, most of it uh, was junk, just stuff that I had thrown in my closet uh, because it didn't have anywhere better to go. But there was some meaningful stuff in there, too. Um, there was stuff like the, the, the stuffed monkey that I had when I was a little kid. There was a, a bruised and, or a battered and scuffed up Orioles batting helmet that I wore every day one summer. And uh, then there were letters and cards from people, uh, from teachers and from some peers and from my parents. And I, I didn't remember that I had kept those things, but I'm glad that I did because it was in reading those things that I could start to trace a line from who I was then to who I am now. You know what I mean? The, the question, you know, what, what has gone uh, the way that I thought it would <laughs> and the way that people around me thought it would go and, and what hasn't. And all in all, it was, it was pretty good, a, uh, a stock-taking moment, as they say. Well, that kind of stock-taking moment is definitely a part of the story that we just read together. It is a transition from one part of David's life to another part, and it requires some reflection on the past. It invites reflection on the past. Both the storyteller and David do that reflecting. And what they find is that the story behind David's story is the story of God working good for his people, which includes you and me. And so I think this has something to say uh, to you and me about how we fit into that larger story and about how we're called uh, to live in it. So it begins that the elders of all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Uh, like I said, uh, David had been made the king of Judah, uh, but that was seven and a half years ago. And in the meantime, there has been this really long war, seven and a half years of war. And although David hadn't pressed this, a succession of opportunists had taken out all of the loyalists to Saul's house. They're all gone now. And so the elders of the other tribes of Israel have arrived rudderless and kingless to speak with David. So they tell him first that their family, we are your bone and flesh, they say. And they tell him that all the time that David was in Saul's house, and Saul wasn't acting very much at all like a king, they know that David was. They know that he has been faithful in service. The way they put it was, when Saul was king, it was you who led Israel out and brought Israel back in. And of course that was true even uh, when David was on the run for all of those long years. He was working for the good of the people of Israel. He was even working for the good of Saul. And so these are good reasons for approaching uh, David, but the most important, the most compelling of the reasons was this. They say in verse 2 that the Lord had said to David, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel. You'll, you'll be the prince over Israel. Now here's the truth. We, we don't know where those specific words are found. We don't know where they're recorded with that specific language about 
being a shepherd and being a prince. I mean, we have, of course, uh, recorded where God says that he's going to be a king. Um, But my suspicion is that those specific words were used with great intention by these elders. It's almost as if they're trying to recast the notion of kingship. I mean, it was common uh, for kings to be called shepherds in the ancient Near East, but for Israel, for Israel, God was their shepherd. And this is the first time in the history of that people that one of their rulers is called a shepherd. And that's uh, incredibly important, I think. Shepherds exist for the good of the sheep, not the other way around. I mean, the whole reason a shepherd exists is for the sheep. And after decades of a king who had lived largely for his own good, I think they hoped for something better. A king who would act for the good of his people. And so now 37-year-old David makes a covenant with the elders of the tribes and they anoint him as king over Israel. And this is a stock-taking moment that is decades in the making. David, you know, the, the eighth son, the kid that everybody forgot, the kid that they had left to take care of the flocks, that kid has now become the king of Israel. And you know, from the moment that he was told that he would be the king until that moment right there, both he and the nation had gone through a lot of garbage. A lot. Lots of bloodshed, lots of tears, lots of hurt, lots of betrayal, division, and loss. But in this moment right now, in this moment, no one can deny uh, what is staring them in the face, and that is that God's promise was certain and that he kept his promise. And church, this is always how it goes. (laughs) God seeks the good of his people, and he makes a promise to work that good, and then he works tirelessly until that good happens. And this is important for people like us. All of God's promises, large and small, are always kept. Starting with that ancient promise that he made to our first parents to redeem us from the fall. Running uh, through that promise that, that God makes that I will be your God and you will be my people. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. Running, running through that promise that God makes that he will work good for his people. Looking forward to that promise that Jesus makes that one day he is going to make everything new again. Every one of these promises, all of these promises have been and they will be kept. There is no deviation from it. There is no faltering at all. And so we have to ask, like St. Paul asks, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And that is the larger story into which your story and mine has been placed. So I don't know uh, all of the waiting that you're having to do now. I don't know all of the particulars of it. I don't know uh, all of the garbage (laughs) 
like David and the nation face that you're having to face, that you're having to walk through right now? I don't know all of the particularities. I, I do know uh, the, the nature of our common experience. We all experience the loss of, of ruptured relationships, and we all experience the sting of loneliness. We experience this feeling of lament over injustice and this longing that we have for true justice. We all experience the grip of sin in our lives or maybe addiction. We all want to recover from past abuse and hurt. We all experience doubt and uncertainty. This is true for every one of us. And church, that's why it's so important to remember, and not only to remember, but also to celebrate that even though it rarely happens on the timetable that we would set out, God keeps all of his promises to us for our good. And he does it in ways that are more profoundly healing and more thoroughly lasting than we ever dare to dream. And we can never lose sight of that church. We wait for this with patience. And because it's true, we can even wait for it together with joy. This is, this is what the life of faith is. This is the life that Jesus calls every one of us into your, in, in, in here too when he says, follow me. And to follow him faithfully is to follow him believing that he will keep his promises to us. And this, uh, <laughs> this one-time forgotten shepherd boy becoming a shepherd king is a small picture that this is absolutely true. God keeps his promises. So now, now that David is king, he needs to set up a, a capital city. Jerusalem is a perfect choice because it's a city that's never been occupied by any of the tribes of Israel. It's a city that sits on the axis between the southern tribes and the northern tribes. Currently, it was occupied by people called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites hear that he is moving towards their city, and they greet him with a crude Iron Age taunt. They believe that their citadel is so secure that they send out a message. Even the blind and the lame will keep you out of our city, David. But David has this plan. Uh, it involves the water shaft that feeds the city. Um, scholars still puzzle over all of the language here, but it's clear that it involves either entering the city through the water tunnel or somehow cutting off the water supply. And so David tells his men to attack, and when he tells them to attack, he frames it in the language of this taunt. And it is, it's not pretty. He says, well, attack the lame and the blind then. My soul hates them. They'll never come into my house. Now, I, uh, I can't make any excuses for the language that David uses here any more than I can make any excuses for any of the other petty and cruel and jealous things that he does in his life. 
I can only say that this is a good reminder to us, an important reminder to us that the promises of God, thankfully and graciously, are not dependent on our own behavior or our own stunning moral clarity. That is the meaning of grace, church. That's what it means. We don't earn it. It is never earned, not for us and not for David. And as verse 10 says, David became greater and greater, not because he was such a great guy, not because he made all of these great choices, not because he was savvy or skillful or smart. He became that way because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's the reason. God was with him. God is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. In fact, he is faithful precisely because of our unfaithfulness. And this is really good news, church. It's really good news for people like us. But you know, there's, there's more uh, to say about this. A few weeks back was Palm Sunday, uh, and on Palm Sunday we talked together as a church about the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as a king. It was in Matthew 21. He came into Jerusalem and he came in as a king, just like David went in that day. But do you remember what Jesus did that day? He didn't, uh, he didn't make any crude counter taunts. Instead, Matthew tells us, with the shouts of the hosannas of the children ringing in the air, the blind and the lame came to him, and he healed them. Where David had wished to exclude, Jesus healed. He is the good shepherd, the true shepherd. He is the one that we follow, church. And you know, the true, the amazing thing about this is that David himself, David himself recognizes this kind of grace and his own place in it. As he is setting things up in Jerusalem, the king of Tyre, of all people, sends messengers to him and, and trees and, and masons, and they build a uh, house for David. And so it seems like things are settled now. This magnificent transition has taken place, but it's now that David takes stock. The storyteller says that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And David knew that he had exalted his kingdom. And uh, that means David knew that all of this was God's work. This was not his own work. And more importantly, he knew why God had done these things. Verse 12 says that David knew that God had done this for the sake of his people. God had done all of this through David and with David for the sake of his people. And church, this includes you and me. This shepherd boy becomes a king that day as a means of making way for the true shepherd, the good shepherd, to one day come to his people, to come to us. And unlike every other king, and unlike every other leader, even the best of them that we can think of, 
This one is always working for our good, no matter what it costs him. As we have already affirmed in the uh, assurance of pardon, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Jesus is the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would strengthen our ability to believe, um, that you would uh, build our ability to believe up, that you'd buttress it, that you'd make it stronger and stronger. Father, that you would help us to believe that you are a God who keeps your promises to us for our good. Father, we ask that you would uh, do that so that as we walk through all of that stuff that we walk through, the pain, the loss, the difficulty, the trouble, um, so that we would be strengthened, (laughs) so that we would begin to have patience built in us by the Spirit and even joy as we wait together for you to keep promises. We ask, Father, that you would do that so that we would grow up in our faith, And we ask that you would do that so that through us we can be a strong and peaceful and secure people through whom you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.